Well, over the last several weeks, we've been talking about pleasure, haven't we? And in this series, we've spoken quite a bit about how this poses a problem because all of us are pleasure addicts, but we naturally seek pleasure in the wrong things. Things as seemingly benign as uh, entertainment or maybe uh, overindulgence in food and other things like that to things that are uh, clearly caustic, like addiction to sex or body image issues or addiction to pornography or uh, other such things that threaten to rip us apart. Naturally, we'll go to every well but Jesus to find pleasure. The first week, we made a simple biblical case that, that God's primary desire for us is to find pleasure in him. That at salvation, he doesn't just simply give us new duties, he wants to give us new desires. He actually wants us to want him. That's his primary aim in our life. He wants to fill us with delight in him because he knows that's where the greatest joy is found. See, the, the reason why pleasure and joy are, are so difficult to get our hands on is because we look in the wrong places. It can only be found in Christ, but it seems so natural to find it in other things, doesn't it? I will mention again that uh, finding pleasure in Jesus is not the same as finding pleasure in chocolate or coffee. I can find pleasure in those things passively without even trying. I don't have to try to find pleasure in those. That's why it seems counterintuitive to find pleasure in Jesus because that is unnatural, isn't it? It's unnatural. We naturally go to other things because we're broken by sin. But I'm speaking tonight to those who sense that battle raging within them. It's probably all of us, hopefully, if the Spirit is stirring your heart. But that... that, uh, uh, inner argument you have that maybe goes something like this. Well, Chris, I know that I'm to desire Jesus and I'm to find pleasure in him, but I naturally find pleasure in all these other things, whether it's Hulu or, you know, traveling or whatever else, good or bad. I naturally find pleasure in those things. I don't naturally find pleasure in Christ. So if I want to be an authentic person, that I should, then I should abandon this unnatural feeling of trying to find pleasure in Christ and should just go to those things that I'm naturally attracted to. Doesn't that make me a person of greater integrity? And the answer is absolutely no. That's right from the pit of hell. That idea that uh, we are in a fight, an all-out war to find pleasure in Christ and it will never feel natural. It'll never feel natural. It'll always be a daily battle. For example, on the outside, to many, Martin Luther looked invulnerable. A spiritual giant that brought the biblical doctrine of salvation by grace through faith alone to the forefront of the church. And we're all thankful for him and we stand on his shoulders today. But those close to him knew his affliction. He wrote to Melicoctin from Wartburg Castle on July 13, 1521, while he was supposedly working feverishly on the translation of the New Testament. And thank God for his transparency here. Listen to this letter he wrote. Giant of the faith. I sit here at ease, hardened and unfeeling. Alas, praying little, grieving little for the church of God, burning rather in the fierce fires of my untamed flesh. It comes to this. I should be a fire in the spirit. In reality, I'm a fire in the flesh with lust, laziness, idleness, sleepiness. It is perhaps because you've all ceased praying for me that God has turned away from me. 
For the last eight days, I've written nothing nor prayed nor studied, partly from self-indulgence, partly from another vexation, another vexatious handicap, constipation and piles, hemorrhoids, we find out in another place. I really cannot stand it any longer. Pray for me, I beg you, for in my seclusion, here I am submerged in sins. Giant of the faith. Even he suffered in his battle to find pleasure in Jesus. Even when it seems that the glory of Christ is obscured in our lives by stormy clouds of many kinds, both those that we manufacture and things done to us, whether it's abuse, addiction, physical illness, depression, the storm clouds will come and the battle for pleasure will always rage. It will never, ever, ever get easier. With one snap of our finger, we can go shopping or look at porn or never-ending entertainment. We can obsess over our body image and compare ourselves to others. We have options for pleasure, don't we? We certainly have way too many. We know it will never be easy or natural, but we will have faith monuments to look back on in times where we choose pleasure in Christ over pleasure in other things. And there will come a point for you and for me where we remember what he's done in the past and how infinitely greater he is than all things. And by faith, we move forward with confidence as we find pleasure in him and have a track record that does just that. So we fight with the word in lockstep with prayer. Last week, the very first week, we established the case for why our primary aim in life, biblically, the primary vision that God has for our life is finding pleasure in him. Second week, uh, Kimball talked about how uh, one of the primary weapons we have in this battle is the word. We end the series tonight with prayer. And the word and prayer obviously go together like PB and J. You can't have one without the other. It just doesn't work. Um, prayer is simply the offering of our desires and passions to God. The definition of prayer, according to the Westminster Catechism, which I will say is a great tool for discipleship, that is underutilized today, but was used for hundreds of years in the church uh, to help strengthen our faith, simply defines prayer this way. Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. And tonight I want to focus just on the first part, but I wanted you to hear it all. An offering up of our desires to God. So prayer, prayer acts as a mirror to God. We say, God, here are my desires. So if we don't pray for the glory of Christ to be revealed in and through us, if we don't pray for sinners to be rescued by Christ, if we don't pray for the kingdom of God to come in the form of justice and mercy in our communities and in our lives, if those things aren't burning on our hearts, then it shows the sick condition of our souls, and that is a very good thing. Because we don't hide from God. We, we, we tell him what our desires are. Lord, right now I am burning with the desire to look better than all these people I see online, to look skinnier, to look more attractive. I'm burning with the desire to have sex with this person. I'm burning with a desire to escape reality and drown myself in endless hours of entertainment. And we, we let him change our desires. We ask him to change our desires. We don't do it on our own. Do you know that? Pleasure in Christ will not happen on your own. You can't just white knuckle it and hope it'll work. 
It comes through using these divine, uh, supernatural tools of prayer and the word, these graces from God. If God's primary aim is to take glory from our desire for him above all else, which it is, then what author Jad Packer says is true. He says, I believe that prayer is the measure of a man spiritually in a way that nothing else is so that how we pray is as important as a question as we can ever face. So when we pray to God, how would that sound if we said it to another person? Does it show tremendous delight in him and desire for him? Is there there passion in our words? Is there a desire to know him more? Is there a desire to see his kingdom come and his will be done? The answer for all of us is we're probably pretty weak. And we don't have to hide from that. We can confess it that, Lord, right now, my words are apathetic to you. And unless you breathe life into this stuffy soul of mine, it's always going to feel like my prayers are bouncing off the walls. It's supposed to feel impossible. Because it's impossible because we need the Holy Spirit. If it was possible, we wouldn't need the Holy Spirit to teach us how to pray, would we? We reveal the treasures of our heart, and God sees them, and he gives us an impossible command. Jesus does in Matthew 10, 37. He says, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So we fight for pleasure in Christ because he's not willing to share us with another. Now that doesn't mean that we can't take joy from the graces God gives us like family and home, but those things can't become primary. Those things flow out of making Christ first. We can't truly love others, serve others until our ultimate pleasure is found in Christ. The only thing that will truly glorify Christ from a heart that's been changed to desire him above all else is praying for him to do that in us and praying for him to do that in one another. It's this kind of joy-infused believer made by fighting for pleasure with the word and prayer that endures unspeakable suffering that we find in the early church. Listen to this in Hebrews 10.34, speaking to, to early believers. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So early Christians were persecuted for their faith. Many are today more than any other time in the world, uh, all over the place, especially in the Middle East. And their homes, their families, their possessions are stolen. But it gave these believers then and today great and lasting joy because they were looking forward to the redemption of all things. Jesus making all things right. And we know what it is to have joy and hope, don't we? If uh, your boss tells you, next week I'm giving you a 50% raise then you're going to have joyful hope in something that hasn't yet happened, right? That just made your week. Like this week's going to be really awesome because you know next week something great's going to happen, right? So it is when we pray for Christ to bring us, bring us pleasure through his word, that we delight in his word, that we delight in our hope in him, both now that he saved us and we have abundant life. We have the life that everyone's trying to find in all kinds of other things. We have that in Christ now because he's the author of joy and joy can't be found outside of its author. And we have it in what will ultimately happen in the future when we see Jesus face to face. Now, this fighting for joy 
is radical. It's not some kind of soft pillow for Christians who want to avoid trials. It's just the opposite. It enables believers to go to great lengths and great suffering for Jesus as depicted in what we just read in Hebrews. And this kind of joy is also far from a health and wealth, word, faith, movement kind of gospel. That, well, you, you give to God so that you can get in return. That's not the way God works. We see in the early church in Corinth, they were called to give sacrificially, but to do so with a joyful heart. And they did. They gave out of an abundance of joy, not out of simple obligation. So for the rest of our time, we're going to look at how the early church fought for pleasure in Christ through prayer. Before Christ. So now many of us don't think of Christians as existing before Christ, but they did. Did you know that? Because those who had faith in God before Christ were looking forward by faith with the limited knowledge that they had to the coming work of Christ. They were looking forward to it. Now we look back to it by by, uh, grace through faith alone in Christ. So we read their simple prayers in Psalm 90, 14. They pray, satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we might sing for joy and be glad all our days. Then similarly in Psalm 51, verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. So they're, they're praying for joy and they're playing for pleasure. They're not trying to manufacture it. They're asking God for it. They're asking God to put in them the desires that don't currently exist. This, these verses would be, would be good for us to memorize them and to pray them over ourselves right from the scripture for our brothers and sisters. And in fact, I want to give you the opportunity to do that right now. This might be a little uncomfortable for you. If it is, then we're going to make you stand on the chair and pray. No, I'm just kidding. You don't have to pray if it makes you feel uncomfortable. Um, But I want to encourage you just to grab someone around you and simply pray these prayers that you see in these verses. Psalm 90, 14, and Psalm 51, 12, if you guys could cycle through those too. But it's very, very simple. I might pray for Sarah. Psalm 90, 14. Lord, satisfy Sarah in the morning with your unfailing love that she may sing for joy and be glad all her days. And then Psalm 51, 12. Lord, please restore to Sarah the joy of your salvation and grant her a willing spirit to sustain her. So you can pray those things. You can add to those prayers as well. But this is straight from the prayer book of God in Psalms. We, we must not only read the word, but pray the word. You guys know that, right? We have to pray the word. And we're going to do that just now. So go ahead and take a minute and pray these prayers over somebody sitting around you.
Notice right here in this uh, first verse in Psalm 90, satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Do you know that there is a war on your pleasure every single day and as soon as you wake up, the worst thing we can do is grab that phone and go to the news or go to Facebook or go to our text. You know why? You give something else the ability to steal your joy. Do not do that. One of the best practices we can have, guys, the best practices as believers is realize there's an attack on our joy from the second our eyes open. If your phone's right there by your bed, you take it, you have a devotional all set up, ready to go. You somehow find a way to let the Bible be playing as your alarm clock. I mean, whatever it takes. But as soon as you wake up, you go to the Word. And maybe what you do tomorrow is you pray that verse over yourself and over your family and over others. Satisfy us in the morning with it. Naturally, we're going to look for satisfaction elsewhere. The very first thing, can we do that? I mean, we're here to equip one another. We're not here on Sunday nights to mess around. We're, met, we're wasting our time if we don't apply what we're learning here. All right, we're here to get sharpened. And I want you to sharpen me, and I hope that I sharpen you. So let's do that. You can hold me accountable, and we can hold one another accountable. You asked me next week, Chris, did you do that? Did you pray Psalm 9014 when you woke up, all right? Now, I might not do that. I might do something else, but at least that. That's a practical thing. I might have another plan, and you might have another plan, but that makes it easy for us. Does that sound good? Amen. Amen. All right. Uh, so you see how the psalmist here asks God to have a willing spirit because naturally our spirit is not willing. It's weak. I mean, why are we surprised that we don't desire God? Why are we surprised that we're sinners? Why? I mean, it's a daily, moment-by-moment battle to find pleasure in him and not other things. So now on to after the birth and life of Jesus to the New Testament where we'll focus on the early church. First, their aim in prayer was full joy through glorifying God. In John 16, verse 24 Jesus prays, until now, or I'm sorry, he says, until now you've not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. That's quite a promise. Ask me for the ultimate desires of your heart to be fulfilled and I'm gonna do it. Can anybody else promise us that? I don't know about you, but when I watch endless baseball, which I think is gonna be fun, that's not fun to anyone else in this room, but because baseball is kind of dead, but it is to me and you. Yeah, amen, amen. Uh, but it doesn't satisfy. After a couple hours, I feel kind of dirty, you know, like, man, it's, this doesn't taste as good as I thought it was going to taste, you know. Um, but I can ask, Lord, I know that you came to bring me ultimate purpose and ultimate joy, and I believe that even though right now my flesh and my mind are saying, no way. Um, Full joy can come because that's what the gospel is. The gospel is good news of great joy. That's ultimately what the gospel is. The gospel, the message of Jesus Christ is joy is found in Jesus. Do you know that? Pleasure and joy are found in him. He's what we're looking for. He's what our heart desires. It's what Paul had in mind when he prays in Romans 15, verse 13 over the early church and in us. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. We already said great hope fills us with great joy. And great hope is magnified when we ask God to increase it. 
Lord, fill me with greater hope that your gospel is going to be growing in and around me. Fill me with greater hope that your kingdom is growing in my home group. Fill me with greater hope in what you're doing in my brothers' and sisters' lives. Now, a necessary disclaimer here, the goal in pleasure-seeking in Christ, I try to make, that is the goal of my life, to be a pleasure-seeker of Jesus Christ, number one. That, that's what I aim, that's my goal, maybe half the time if I'm lucky, but that, that's my aim, that's where I'm headed, and I hope that's where the rest of us can be headed as well. Uh, the goal in pleasure-seeking in Christ is to not make God some sort of lackey simply by praying our own selfish desires, it says in James 4.3, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So it's okay to pray, God, I pray that you provide for me, but honestly, I want the provision so I can spend it on the new Xbox or the new car. Would you change that desire? And you know what? He will. He'll make it, man, I, I want my desire to be rich for the kingdom of God. I don't want to be a millionaire. I want to be one who's given millions to the kingdom of God. He'll change your desire. He will because he promises to do that. He promises to, he, that he will give us the power and the desire to do what pleases him in Philippians 2. He gives us that promise. The focus, in contrast with selfish desires, is the glory of Christ. As Jesus pray, uh, says in John 14, verse 13, he says, And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So see, the glory of God and the glory of Christ is what we're to ask about. Those are to be our prayers. Do you see what Jesus does through these verses? Follow the train of thought that God's word gives us regarding pleasure. First, since Jesus is the very center and backbone of pleasure, meaning he's the author, then it makes sense that fullness of joy can only be found in bringing glory to Christ through the power of the indwelling spirit. Paul and Jesus then pray these prayers requesting that believers find joy in Jesus through a changed heart that actually desires the glory of Jesus more than personal gain. And make no mistake, it's a miraculous transformation that we can't do on our own that we'll be discussing here in depth in a moment. The most compassionate thing that Jesus can do for us is to leave us with the Holy Spirit. Now we are closer to him because of the indwelling Holy Spirit than what the disciples were when they walked with him on the earth. And that, the Holy Spirit is who fills us with joy. Without that, we're doomed to meaningless flings instead of fullness and joy because only the author of joy can bring joy. The best way we can pray for ourselves and other believers then is to pray that they might find pleasure in Christ. Do you know that? That's the greatest prayer we can pray for our spouses, for our friends, for our children, for our family, for our communities, for our home groups. And Jesus gave us some very detailed instructions on how to pray in ways that will bring joy. In fact, he couldn't be more clear. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, the Lord's Prayer, he says, this then is how you should pray. For those of you wanting to know, you're feeling a little confused on how to pray, here's your neon sign. This then is how you should pray. And it's just a couple sentences, very, very simple. Praise God for that, because prayer is hard, isn't it? I mean, I need very simple instructions. It's hard. In Matthew 6, 9, Jesus says, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So when we pray for God's name to be glorified or hallowed, we acknowledge that people can only discover joy if they discover Christ. That's the great ruse, the great deception of our, the enemy of our souls. Is he says to us and our friends that joy is found elsewhere. That is the battle. 
But when we acknowledge our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, you are the one to be glorified. Not Hollywood, not athletics, not me, not those around me. You are to be glorified. And the only way for others to find true joy and happiness and for me to find that is to be glorifying you. Because the greatest gift God gives us is the ability through the power of the Holy Spirit to glorify him. Because there's nothing false in him. Every good and perfect gift comes from him. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. All things, all things were created by him and for him. And in him and him alone is life and life abundantly. That's why it's such a battle. And that's why it's that daily moment-by-moment choice the Holy Spirit gives us with the transformed will to choose pleasure in him above all else. Jesus goes on in verse 10. So 9, he says, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Verse 10, he goes on, may your kingdom come and may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. To pray for his kingdom to come is to pray for the greatest possible joy, not only to fill our hearts, but to fill our communities. Because you see, everything from tsunamis to sunburn to starvation and everything else, we experience those things because we live in a fallen world. And Jesus' desire is that through his church, that yes, souls would be changed to forever love and know Jesus, but also the communities around us would change. That the church would be seen as the greatest resource of life and justice and all the rest because of Jesus. And he gives us a picture of what it will look like when it's finally realized when Jesus comes back in Revelation 21.4. It says, he, that is Jesus, will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death. We celebrated that in song. Or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And the old order is the period of redemptive history we're in right now. Where all you got to do is turn on the news for two minutes or look at your own heart or me looking at mine. And we see that the world and we are broken. And that politics and money and education are great ways to try to cover it up, but we see sin in all of its nastiness, don't we? We see rich, nation, rich nations pillaging other poor nations in, a, in order to stay on top. We see uh, kids being seen as inconvenient and unwanted and being slaughtered by the millions. We see uh, uh, 30-some-odd percent of women raped and abused. And Jesus will one day dry every tear. And I don't know how, but he's going to make all wrongs right. He's going to make it all right, and we look forward to that day. And we speed its coming. We speed its coming with the joy of the Lord. This battle for pleasure in Christ matters. It matters in our cities. It matters to, to kill racism. It matters to kill poverty. It matters to save people from eternal death and separation from Christ in hell. And the fight is pleasure. The fight isn't to become better people. The fight is to become ones who find their pleasure and joy in Christ because that will spill out. That's how it was in the early church, and that's what God wants for us now. So what we do tomorrow morning to fight for joy, it matters. The way you fight for it is going to affect me. And it's going to affect your neighbors, my neighbors, and our community and our world. 
This fullness of joy, this pleasure in Jesus comes through the Holy Spirit as described in Luke eleven thirteen. Jesus says, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The Holy Spirit counsels us. He empowers us for ministry. He also, as we said, gives us the power and the desire to do what pleases him. And we can lean on that. We can say, Holy Spirit, you are my Lord. And today I pray that you would lead and guide me into all truth, into greater love for Jesus and greater pleasure in him. Ephesians 1 says that this gift of the Spirit guarantees our salvation, that in fact, we read in the word that there is no salvation, true salvation, without pleasure in Christ, that the greatest proof of salvation is finding pleasure in Christ. This uh, gift of the Holy Spirit empowers us to be bold witnesses for Christ. That's part of our joy. Did you know that? Part of our pleasure in Christ is witnessing to others about Jesus. Because listen to this, Luke 15, 7. Jesus says, I tell you that in the same way there'll be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. You know what it says in, about what's, what's happening in heaven? Myriads and millions. That means myriads and millions. That means thousands, if not millions, of angels are constantly rejoicing. Whenever an angel is seen in the Bible, do you know it's not some like little fairy like we see in the movies? It's like some scary-looking person that makes people wet their pants. Okay, I mean, depends were not handed out, but today they would be if an angel, you know, appeared in our midst, and myriads of these glorious frightening creatures are giving glory to God all the time and they throw a party when a sinner repents. I don't know about you, but I want to be a part of that party. <laughs> because joy and pleasure are magnified when they're shared, aren't they? We see that when you go to a wedding and, and the bride and groom love Jesus and you're just all about them. There's a joy there, isn't it? As you join them in celebrating their love and their life together and the little church they're starting you know, uh, 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 called the Hubers, called the Roricks, called the Thrushes, called the Olds, whatever, uh, called the Wicks, that little church that's planted, you're celebrating it. There's something greater happening at a Christian wedding, isn't there? There is. Joy is magnified when we share it. We must witness, not just to reach people, but for our own pleasure's sake. Because when you take that step and you're like, man, I don't want to do this. They're going to make fun of me. It's going to be scary. It's going to be whatever. You, you step in the face of what our enemy says, that pleasure is found in other things. Playing it safe, not getting in anyone's face. But when you step out of that and say, the greatest thing I can offer you is the author of joy, then we discover it ourselves. So it's okay to be afraid. It's okay to be afraid. The Bible is filled of scaredy cats, isn't it? Constantly, well, God, I don't want to speak for you. Well, you're going to speak for me anyway. I don't, I don't want to speak for you. Well, I'm going to get your brother to speak for you. Okay, fine. You know. And we see it all through the scripture. These uh, reticent leaders that God calls out, David, who just thinks he's a, you know, a shepherd boy. God, what are you going to do with me? And God makes him a mighty king. And Jesus himself, the suffering servant that everyone else despised, is our glory and our salvation. The Spirit also gives us freedom in worship, to worship with great freedom and joy. In Ephesians 5.18, it says, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. See, the problem is our church services are more like a funeral and less like a party. 
And they're really to feel like a party. The best thing we can do in worship is pray for our own pleasure in Christ to be magnified and for our brothers and sisters' pleasure in Christ to be magnified. Because what does somebody have to do when they get drunk? They have to keep drinking to stay drunk, right? We have to keep speaking truth into one another's life. We have to keep praying that we'll find our pleasure in him and in him alone. You gotta keep cracking that open. The, The bottle that the Holy Spirit uses us to intoxicate us with pleasure in Christ is one another. It's the word of God, it's prayer, and it's one another. We spur one another on with encouragement, with loving acts, with prayer that they would find pleasure in Christ. When people get drunk, they, when I'm talking about drunk, not like drunk, drunk, out of their mind, plastered. Then they're not really human. But I'm talking like moderately drunk. They lose inhibitions, don't they? They may become giddy, and they will reveal their true nature. So it is when we take this drink from the Holy Spirit of speaking to one another truths and singing truths together. Our services should be a party. So the joy of Christ comes out in our lives when we're engaged in true worship together. Um, It also comes out when we practice and walk out unity. Unity brings pleasure in Christ. I need to speed it up here. Uh, So John 17, verse 20, Jesus prays, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. So Jesus says he's not praying for them alone. That is the disciples who walked with them, but he's also praying for those who would believe in Jesus because of their uh, ministry. So that would include us. And he's praying that they would be one so that the world would know that Jesus sent them. So we have this privilege of walking in the love and fellowship of the Trinity, the same love and fellowship that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have with one another. So when Paul thought on this kind of supernatural unity, here's what he said, Philippians 2.2, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit and of one mind. So Paul prays for this one-mindedness, and elsewhere he prays for us to have the mind of Christ. That is, we view life and the decisions we have and the ministries we're engaged in through what God says through his word. Second, it says, having the same love. That's the same sacrificial love that, that, uh, uh, that led Jesus to the cross, that we would have that for one another. And then third, being in one spirit and one mind, meaning a wholehearted devotion with this purpose of glorifying Christ and making him known. So that's impossible, isn't it? Once again, we can't do that on our own, but it's a fitting challenge because you know there are 42 sects just in the Baptist church, just in the Baptist church, and there are many other denominations. Some of those divisions are necessary, most of them are not, but when we make secondary things primary things, we create division. But when my primary focus is to delight and find joy in Christ, then others who do that We might disagree, we might disagree strongly, but we can still walk hand in hand towards Christ. Pleasure in Christ together is the greatest contribution towards unity we can make in the church. I mean, if think about believers that we have disagreements with theologically, if we spent more time talking about how awesome Jesus is and all that he's done in our lives and heard one another's stories of what Jesus has done. I'm not talking about big theological differences, but the little ones that drive divisions into churches. Um, 
I'm, gonna, uh, I'm just going to hit this real quick because I don't want to miss what we have at the end here. Um, pleasure in Christ also moves us to pray for other believers to grow and know God better. Paul prays, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. And then he goes on in chapter 3, verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people. And you guys know I could go on all night about that because I love Ephesians for sure. But uh, suffice it to say that... uh, You know, I knew as a little boy, Jesus loves me because I sang the song and I grew up in the church and all of that. But as the pleasure of Christ fills us, we have a desire for others to really get it, don't we? We really want them to get it. And that can only come through prayer for our brothers and sisters. I want to close things down here, and I'm going to skip Luke 2 here, Brandon, and go uh, right to the end. So practically in my life, this is how it works. When Jesus was, quit celebrating out there. I saw some people celebrating that my message is almost over. Uh, it's okay, though. I, I do that, too, when, other, when I hear other pastors speak. Uh, true confessions, I mean, seriously. Uh, but practically, we don't just go to the Word. We pray over it, as I said earlier. You know, when the shepherd, or when uh, the angels came to the shepherds, they said, I bring you good news of great joy. And they said, the Messiah has come. Now, God could have just given these shepherds joy that wasn't attached to any truth. But that could be just, you know, bad venison they had for dinner that made him feel a little loopy, right? Joy is attached to truth. We pray truth. So here's uh, something I stole a long time ago from someone. I don't remember who it was. But uh, it's helped me in, in praying for pleasure. And the acronym is IOUs, IOUS. I is incline. The first thing my soul needs is an inclination toward God and his word. Without that, nothing else will happen of value in my life. I'm naturally not inclined to look to God and his word. I must want to know God and read his word and draw near to him. So where does that want to come from, to draw near to God? It doesn't come from me. It comes from God. So I pray for this wonderful gift from God that he's promised to give me. So I pray Psalm 119.36. It teaches us to pray, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Very simply, we ask God to take our hearts, which are more inclined to comfort food, the latest news, and Hulu, and to change that inclination. We're asking God to create desires that are not naturally there. The next is open. Oh, open. Next, I need to have the eyes of my heart open so that when my inclinations lead me to the word, I see what's really there and not just my own ideas. Who opens the eyes of my heart so I can understand God's word? Do I have to try really hard? No, God opens my heart. Yes, there's labor that goes along with it, but God gives strength to my hands and strength to my mind to labor to understand the Bible. So Psalm 119 verse 18 teaches us to pray, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Now catch this. So many times we read the Bible and we don't think it's very wonderful, do we? We think it's boring and confusing and lifeless. True confess, don't you? Don't look away. I know you do because I feel that way often. Here's the thing. It's reading doesn't produce joy, so what can we do? We cry out to God, 
Open the eyes of my heart, O Lord, to see what it says about you as wonderful. Psalm 119, 18. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. We have an enemy that wants to blind us to God's word. And we need this divine weapon of the word and prayer to find pleasure in Christ. And then unite. You unite. Then I'm concerned that my heart is badly fragmented. Parts of it are inclined and parts of it are not. Parts see wonder and parts say, that's not so wonderful in your word. It's boring or lifeless or whatever. What I long for is a united heart where all the parts of me say a joyful yes to what God reveals in his word. Where does that wholeness and unity come from? It doesn't come from me. It comes from God. So Psalm 86 verse 11 teaches me to pray, unite my heart to fear your name. Now don't stumble over the word fear here when you thought we were talking about pleasure in Christ. Chris, hold on. All of a sudden you're talking about fear. The fear of the Lord is a joyful experience when we renounce all sin, isn't it? A thunderstorm can be a trembling joy when you know that you can't be destroyed by the lightning, can it? So we pray along with Nehemiah, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And finally, S, satisfy. I hope that you guys will write these things down. There is no greater fight than the fight for pleasure. We're not messing around here. We put on our hard hats to learn and to apply. This is what will destroy us, and, or this is what will build us. S, satisfy. What I really want from all this engagement with the word of God and the work of his spirit in answer to my prayer is for my heart to be satisfied with God and not with the world. So where does this satisfaction come from? Again, it doesn't come from me, it comes from God. Psalm 90, 14 teaches us to pray, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. So the bad news is that we can't find this fullness of joy and pleasure in Christ on our own. The good news is we can't find this fullness of joy and pleasure in Christ alone. It's both bad and good news. It's good news because if we could find it on our own, then we would compare ourselves by one another. And if we worked really hard, you could get more pleasure than me, and it would be based on my own merits, but it's not. We find pleasure in Christ only because he gives us the power and the desire to love him. Um, But we can fight with the weapons of the word and prayer to receive the fullness of joy that's already ours in Christ. So I want to encourage you tonight, if if right now your primary pleasure and joy is not in Jesus, then my goodness, join the club. It's a time to pray for that. And to pray for it over and for one another, just as you did a few moments ago. So we'll have the prayer team up here that would love to pray with you uh, for that or whatever else is on your heart. Or you can pray with someone around you. But uh, uh, let me pray and we'll, we'll go together with, uh, with the word of God. Lord, we thank you for the grace of your word. Lord, we know that, uh, man, when we get in the car we're going to be waylaid with other desires, um, other comforts. If I can just check this thing off the to-do list, then I'll feel good. I'll have pleasure. If I can just get a few moments um, to escape to whatever, then I'll feel pleasure, Lord. But we thank you that it is found in you alone, you and you alone. Help us to grab a hold of the perseverance that is ours in Christ. And Lord, help us to thirst for more of you. 
please, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.